the Occupational Safety and Health Administration conducted an investigation at a company in Trenton, New Jersey at their facility making rubber parts after they had been notified of a serious injury. And when they did, they discovered to their uh, allegations in, the, in their subsequent citation, a number of other alleged violations, including one involving the noise standard. And the citation item for the noise standard became a debate between the employer and OSHA as to whether or not the alleged violations constituted a willful classification of violation. And we're going to discuss willful classification violations and what kind of evidence is necessary to support an allegation of a willful violation under the Occupational Safety and Health Act on this, the October 27th, 2021 episode of the OSHA 3030. Welcome, everyone, to the OSHA 3030 with Manish Rath. I'm Manish Rath. I'm an attorney at Keller & Heckman, a law firm in Washington, D.C. I am an attorney that engages in a, the practice of occupational safety and health law, OSHA law, and I've been doing that for almost the entirety of my 26 years of practice. And I'm very fortunate for today. I'm joined by one of my friends and colleagues, John Gustafson, another attorney in our OSHA practice who also engages in other areas of law. Uh, such as FEFRA and TSCA and uh, California's Prop 65. John, thank you very much for joining us on, on this OSHA 3030, and welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Manish. Well, John, we've got a great case today. Why don't you walk us through it? Sure. Um, we're, today we'll discuss the, uh, the case Secretary of Labor versus Home Rubber Company, which, as Manish said, is a compelling case because it closely examines the standard for willful violations. So we will define the willful violation standard. We will go over the uh, OSHA's arguments and justification for a willful violation citation. We'll then briefly take a look at the administrative law judge's decision uh, on that citation, followed by the employer's appeal to the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission. We'll look at the review commission's decision and then uh, practical takeaways, what employers can do to mitigate risk. And then finally, we have a new feature as of the beginning of this calendar year called Off the Record, where we'll turn off all the recordings. This, this live webinar is recorded and will be republished as a, a podcast. And all of our prior episodes are available as a podcast going back several years. And uh, as well, it'll be published with the slides and video uh, on YouTube. But we'll go off the record and just have a strictly for our live audience only uh, an opportunity to do question and answers. And I think that's and we request that they be pre-submitted, and I think we've got three questions that have been submitted that I think are really critical that we've selected. Uh, with that said, let's go ahead and get into the facts of the case. Uh, this is an important case because it goes to the, the standard for willfulness. That's right, Manish. And th this case really begins at one of Home Rubber Company's four mills, what they call the Chrome Mill. 
And as background, Home Rubber is a small company. It's 36 employees that makes bespoke specialty rubber products, including hoses, belts, tubes, gaskets, and sheet rubber. So in May 2016, an employee was feeding raw material into a steel roller when his hand was pulled into the, the machine's nip point. The employee pulled the brake and reversed the flow of the roller, so was able to uh, free his hand. He was taken immediately to a hospital where four finger, fingers were amputated, which triggers the requirement to report the incident to OSHA under OSHA's record keeping and reporting standard, 29 CFR 1904. After the employee was injured and left the mill uh, in the ambulance, other employees cleaned the blood using rags and bleach. This is an important point because uh... A lot of employers know that they have a duty to self-report a fatality, a hospitalization, amputation, inoculation, but sometimes facility managers are unaware of the rule or in the, uh, the moment of crisis, they forget to self-report to OSHA, but the rule requires prompt reporting within eight hours or within 24, depending on whether it's a fatality or a hospitalization, hospitalization amputation or inoculation. And so that's an extremely prompt, uh, short, short deadline for uh, the definition of the word prompt and for self-reporting to OSHA. Uh, and we've covered that in several other prior episodes of the OSHA 3030. For those of you who are interested, check it out. So John, this keeps going. OSHA hears the self-report from Home Rubber Company and then comes on site and conducts an inspection shortly afterwards. That's right. Um... At uh, OSHA inspected ten days later, um, looked at looked at the facts of the incident, but the compliance officer also noted noticed that she needed to shout to speak to the owner of the the mills of Home Rubber. So she returned sixteen days later to monitor the noise levels in the mills. That's sort and, of a, a uh, without any equipment, that's sort of a way that inspectors will uh, use a rule of thumb for themselves to know whether or not they ought to follow up on the possibility of noise comp uh, compliance or compliance with the noise standards, that if they have to shout uh, that they, they, there's a possibility that the ambient noise level is in the zone where there should be hearing protection, possibly. And so they, they then schedule follow-up uh, investigation on their subsequent visit. That's right. So, so they did come back and they did, and in this particular case, the compliance officer did schedule a, a follow-up visit on that basis and conducted noise monitoring uh, and on, on three workers and, and sure enough uh, came to the conclusion that the noise levels had exceeded the action level. Uh, they were getting uh, for an eight hour time weighted average as high as almost 92 decibels and did not see any evidence of hearing protection uh, on the workers in that same area or for those workers who uh, had the monitoring. This is important because uh, the next step for an investigator is almost certainly going to be to examine an employer's uh, hearing conservation program records and then continue to go backwards and see 
how much of the noise standard an organization is or is not in compliance with. Uh, so it conducted the inspection and it discovered other uh, items that it alleged were violations of various other standards. John, you mentioned uh, some workers were cleaning up uh, the blood afterwards and there was an allegation of a violation of the bloodborne pathogen standard. And, oh. and there was about seven standards, OSHA standards that they alleged were violated under seven different items, at least under three citations. Uh, and, and, Chrome and a home rubber company uh, contested them. We're going to talk about the noise standard because it's that one that the Occupational Safety and Health Administration alleged to be a willful violation. And the topic today, this case uh, provides an excellent framework for what kind of evidence supports an allegation that a violation was not merely a serious or a non-serious violation, but uh, a higher level of severity known as a willful violation. And, and so I think that this, this noise standard is going to form the, the confines of the rest of our, our conversation, although it's important to note that there were many other OSHA standards that, that Homebrewer Company was cited for. And many of which were unrelated to the incident that occurred. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And I think the point is that you're making, John, is that, you know, when you self-report, you are subjected to an OSHA inspector coming on site, and they may notice other things that they allege to be violations that have nothing to do with causation or have, have no causative value for the incident that you self-reported. So, John, let's talk about willful violations as, as, a, stand, as a classification of alleged violation under the Act. Sure. So, right. Let's let's get into the the standard. So, under under federal court case law, which the review commission is required to follow, a violation is willful if an employer's state of mind at the time of the violation reflects an intentional, knowing, or voluntary disregard for the requirements of the Occupational Safety and Health Act or employer safety. An alternative formulation of the standard is that at the time of the violation, the employer acts with plain indifference to either the cited OSHA requirements or employee safety. So there, there's a little uh, overlap or similarity between these uh, formulations of the standard. Voluntary disregard is probably pretty close to plain indifference. But to establish intentional disregard or knowing or voluntary disregard, OSHA must show that the employer had a heightened awareness of the applicable standard and then consciously disregarded that standard. So there is, there needs to be on some level a conscious decision not to comply with the standard. And then the, the review commission also, in this case, also defined plain indifference uh, as requiring a showing that the employer possessed a state of mind such that if it were informed of the standard, it would not care. So this is a excellent uh, recitation, Sean, of the sort of the black letter law statement of what it means to qualify a particular alleged violation as a willful violation, as opposed to a non-serious or serious violation. So when OSHA had alleged that this particular noise uh, level at this particular facility on this inspection had constituted a willful violation, 
their arguments in support of that were, for, first of all, that the company had uh, requested a noise audit from a third party consultant about 15, 16 years earlier, and that the audit had provided the employer with information to lead it to believe that its operations would exceed the action level under the noise standard. Uh, this is important. OSHA believed that if you had that audit in your hands from 16 years ago, uh, you, you are now on notice that the standard applies and thus any failure to comply with that standard would have to have been willful, argued OSHA. Uh, I would point out two things. One, the the age of that audit report and two, that it was not for the Trenton facility, it was for a different facility. Uh, OSHA argued that the operations were substantially similar and would have put a home rubber company on notice. Uh, in addition to that, the uh, agency alleged that there were people who specifically were informed of the noise standard obligations uh, based on the audit report, and that had at some point been told that they ought to engage in, uh, implement a hearing conservation program. Uh, they included the, the safety and health director at that facility at that time, 1999, and also, uh, I believe, the, the uh, owner and uh, manager uh, as well. The fact also that OSHA pointed to the fact also that the owner and the manager had entered the work area with the high noise environment uh, on an almost daily basis and or at least frequently. And so they would have known of the noise levels simply by their own personal experience. And for these reasons, OSHA argued that Home Rubber Company had enough knowledge that uh, would have compelled a company to engage in a hearing conservation program. And the fact that Home Rubber Company did not was a willful uh, or plainly indifferent uh, approach to compliance with the noise standard. So, so yeah, John, this goes to the administrative law judge, which is the first level, sort of the equivalent of a trial court judge before it goes to the review commission, which would be the equivalent of an appellate review, all within the administrative uh, dispute resolution process. Right, right. And um, it, it bears mentioning that the review commission decision could be uh, could be appealed to an article three court too. So we we have a, a almost like a trial level, an appellate level, and then they could be further reviewed in a federal article three court. Um, at the administrative law judge level, the or ALJ for short, the, the ALJ found that the employer had that heightened awareness of the noise standard, uh, excuse me, noise hazard, and the audiogram requirement, uh, and, and that the employer consciously disregarded that requirement. The judge reasoned that discontinuing the audiogram testing amounted to willfully ignoring the requirements. But there's a real leap in the logic there. OSHA did not, so the judge took discontinuing the testing as willful ignorance of the requirement. 
OSHA did not address the employer's level of intent or consciousness at the time it discontinued testing. So part of this standard that OSHA must meet to allege a willful citation is that there's an instance of conscious disregard. And here the the administrative law judge uh, made a leap there in its in its uh, reasoning that on that basis the administrative law judge affirmed uh, the citations and the willful character of the noise standard citation. So uh, agreed with all of OSHA's citations of various uh, uh, standards. The administrative law judge assessed the penalty of over $180,000, uh, $73,000 of which was for the willful violation of the noise standard. It's an interesting result at the ALJ level. And Home Rubber, fortunately for, for the employer community, decided that it wanted to uh, appeal this to the Review Commission. Uh, it just did not accept the idea that uh, OSHA was advancing, that that the uh, the idea that if you have had a program in the past and discontinued it, that that is by itself evidence of uh, willfully ignoring the requirements. Uh, Home Rubber Company argued that it could be just the opposite. You could take that same fact and argue it both ways. Uh, the fact that we had a program shows that we were trying to comply with the standard. And the fact that it lapsed is evidence of negligence and not willfulness, two different standards of wrong. So, so Home Rubber Company appeals to the Review Commission, and its argument was, we're only challenging the characterization, the classification as willful. We believe that it should be other than serious, non-serious, uh, Home Rubber Company argued. And its argument was, if the owner uh, or for that matter, the manager was uh, aware of the noise at the facility. Nevertheless, it wasn't aware that the uh, hearing protection policy was not being currently put into place. Uh, Home River Company also argued that the former safety director had left the company and it was a mere lapse that the next safety director didn't pick up the program and, and ensure continuity. And after a number of years, it just got forgotten about. And that, that's const that constitutes uh, more like something more like negligence than willfulness. Um, the the facts that, that the, at the owner level, they thought that there was a hearing conservation program going on and didn't realize that it had lapsed in day-to-day -day practice, uh, the, the employer argued was evidence of good faith. Uh, and there is a exception for violations if the employer exercised good faith and did, did in good faith believe that it was in compliance. It's a defense that can be argued. I don't think it has a strong track record of success, but it is a uh, arguably an affirmative defense that is available to employers in certain circumstances where the facts support it. Um, right. It's, it's a generally unsuccessful argument to to argue subjective intent. You know, we thought we were complying. Well, the, the facts might not 
bear that out. Your your practice might not bear that out. And we see right. that we see that argument raised over and over again, often usually unsuccessfully. Right. And, but I'd point out, John, in fairness to Home Rubber, their their point was not to create a good faith defense to a violation, which you're right. I, I I'd say the same thing. It has a poor track record of success. But they were pointing to good faith as a defense to willfulness. And there I think it is the sort of opposites uh, or the obverse of uh, willful uh, intent or, or plain indifference to show that you uh, tried to act in good faith. And so I think it was a reasonable argument to make. But John, they take this argument to the review commission, which is an interestingly composed review commission at the moment. It's supposed to be uh, by statute provides for three commissioners and right now there's only two. In the past, there have been many cases where there were two commissioners and a third seat was vacant and awaiting uh, confirmation. And the two commissioners couldn't decide on or agree on a case and thus they couldn't take any action. Uh, here, this represents a case where the two commissioners were able to agree on enough about this, about this case to render a uh, opinion. And I think that that makes it uh, rather remarkable that that, that uh, Commissioner Lehow and uh, Commissioner Atwood are able to continue the commission's business with just two commissioners. I, I'd say that's quite remarkable. That's right, Manish. So they agreed that there was a violation of the noise, noise standard, but reversed the willful characterization of that standard. So the the two commissioners uh, agreed with the administrative law judge that the employer had a heightened awareness of the audiogram requirement and the noise hazard uh, present at the mill, given that 1999 report and the audit report, the materials given with the audit report by the auditor, and the program that was put into place, which at one point the, the owner of the mill was aware of. Um, but the, the commissioners, in, in reversing the willful characterization, the commissioners uh, honed in on that, that conscious disregard requirement. They, they stated that there was no, that OSHA failed to prove that there was a, an instance of conscious disregard of this requirement. Yes, they let the, uh, the audiogram program, the testing program lapse, but that does not establish the willful state of mind. And at the risk of bearing, uh, stating the obvious here, this is OSHA's burden to meet. So the, the, co the commission is judging uh, whether, whether the agency, uh, whether OSHA uh, adequately established these components of the violation. And by knocking out one of the, the elements of the violation, they were able to, able to reverse the willful characterization. So as a result, the, the willful citation over close to $73,000 was reduced to a serious citation, which has a baseline penalty of $10,000. And that's the penalty that the commission imposed. 
Well, I think, John, this decision was so well uh, laid out and uh, the framework for why this particular alleged violation did not constitute a willful violation or that OSHA had failed to present evidence sufficient to make that case is a, uh, makes the case a, a significant decision. Uh, it, it will, I think, be referred to a great deal going forward uh, because I think in my experience, OSHA uh, compliance officers often take the approach that if there's any evidence that an employer knew any fact about a circumstance or a practice, that that would fuel a uh, allegation of a willful classification of a violation. And, and what the commissioners are saying here is that knowledge of a certain fact or knowledge of a certain circumstance or knowledge of certain practice does not by itself establish willfulness. Willfulness has to mean something more than that, something more like uh, a willful, dis knowing that that's the practice was not in compliance with the standard and willfully wanting to continue to non-comply with the standard or being plainly indifferent to whether compliance is uh, in effect or not. Uh, so don't even bother telling me, for example, what compliance looks like because I won't comply anyways or I won't change my practices. Those are the kinds of uh, that's the level that that OSHA will have to present evidence in support of. Uh, those are the kind of facts that they would have to uh, to use to support a willful allegation. And I think that's right. That that willfulness has to mean something more than mere knowledge of a fact or circumstance or practice. Uh, it has to also relate to knowledge about the existing status of compliance or non-compliance with the standard. Uh, so an incredibly important decision as a consequence. What are some takeaway items that, that employers can walk away from this decision, from this program, uh, and bring back to their respective organizations after this program's over? Well, for one, I think that uh, Home Rubber Company's uh, defense was we, we were complying with the, the noise standard, and then the safety and health director left, and it just sort of lapsed. It got dropped, and nobody saw it to pick it up. Uh, so I, I think that, that organizations have to find uh, and develop mechanisms to bridge between one safety and health personnel and another uh, as a bridge of continuity. For example, exit memoranda or just good file keeping of current safety and health programs, checklists uh, that can be presented to the next inbound safety and health personnel uh, those kinds of whatever device a company comes up with, they have to find some device to bridge between turnover. Uh, John, I think that that there are other devices such as audits, and and I, I encourage employers to consider the use of internal audits, but even more effective sometimes the use of third party audits, particularly through counsel, where attorney client privilege may arguably attach. Right. Right. And Manish, there's a certain value to having an external auditor, uh, unbiased, fresh eyes come and review your compliance. And I know that you've prepared a 120 point audit uh, package that we've used with clients right. uh, as a means of ensuring that we don't have any gaps. Our clients don't have any gaps in compliance. That's right. And there are other products that may not be as thorough, but there, there's some excellent products out there uh, that are. And uh, well, the uh, Employment uh, and Labor Law Audit, ELLA, 
uh, one that I sat on the editorial board for a number of years, has an excellent product. Uh, there are others that are that are not as thorough as that one, but they're they're certainly that, that's an advantage in it of itself because sometimes the shorter ones can be quicker and more easily implemented or more easily uh, uh, put into practice as a, as an audit. Uh, so so. I think employers need to, to look at all of the opportunities for uh, external audits and, and pick the one that, that feels right for their resources that they can throw at it. Uh, but again, I'd say that you know, the opportunity to do this through counsel gives you a fighting chance of protecting the results under uh, an attorney-client privilege, uh, provided that it was all done with the purpose of rendering counsel or advice. Uh, the other thing I'd say is there, there ought to be a protocol for new safety and health managers. They ought to start after they've completed their corporate orientation, there should be a safety and health orientation, which starts with a review of records, a walkthrough, uh, and, and the outbound safety and health director, there, there may be an opportunity to conduct an external, uh, an exit audit, uh, an ex exit interview or an exit uh, audit list. Uh, the, plus the turnover, is, not only can corporations consider annual audits, external audits or internal audits, but whenever there's turnover, that might be another uh, window of opportunity to, to say every time there's turnover, we all will conduct another audit for the benefit of the new inbound safety and health uh, director. Then John, you made another good point about the, the good faith defense. And I think that's something that's, that clearly gives rise to a takeaway item. I think you're right about that. Absolutely. Uh, so the, the commission ended up uh, deciding that that defense was waived that the that home rubber had waived its ability to make the good faith defense because it failed to raise that defense at the administrative law judge level. So it's it's a lesson that's a lesson in uh, planning your defense carefully and just um, uh, obtaining having competent counsel from the outset. Uh, because we don't want to get to the review commission and uh, realize that we can't make arguments that we want to make. Right. And in this case, I think they had very capable counsel, excellent counsel, but this was an opportunity to maybe raise the good faith affirm, uh, defense as an affirmative defense in the pleadings and throughout the, the trying of, of the case as well. You can't just raise it in the pleadings. It also has to be argued uh, at, at trial. So, so that's what employers should do. Those are the takeaway items. Uh, <clears throat> I think that, that uh, the, the other thing I'd say is uh, when uh, employers get the citation, the earliest window of opportunity to bring in counsel uh, at the citation level or even at the date of self-reporting, uh, I think that that affords the company the best opportunity to come up with sound defenses and a sound strategy. Well, John, you have your last point, I think is going to be the last point for this month's OSHA 3030. Uh, we, all of our prior OSHA 3030s, this is episode nine, number 99, and all of our prior OSHA's 3030 uh, are libraried on our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. Check them out. We also have for a number of years, we published them as a podcast. This episode will be up as a podcast uh, it, within the next day or so. Uh, so make sure you subscribe so that it just automatically gets downloaded as soon as a new episode drops. Uh, we would say this, please, when you uh, review, uh, when you watch our or listen to our uh, OSHA 3030 episodes, either as a podcast or as on YouTube, uh, to rate or like the program so that it's more easily searchable by others. 
Uh, and remember to forward your email invitations to the OSHA 3030 on to at least three others, particularly in-house counsel and professionals responsible for safety and health at your organization or at other organizations so that we can continue to bring in new members to our beloved community uh, of the OSHA 3030. Uh, that is the lifeblood of the program. Our next episode will be November 17th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. That'll be our 100th episode. Uh, so it's a big milestone. And it's uh, 1 p.m. Eastern time, always at 1 p.m. Eastern time, and always on a Wednesday. Uh, our sister programs, the Tosca 3030 and the Reach 3030 will be scheduled for November 10th. Check them out. Uh, and our FIFA 3030, if you have uh, good topics that you'd like to hear about for our FIFA 3030, please write to John Gustafson, and uh, he'll, he'll certainly consider them. Uh, John, thank you very much for joining me on this episode of the OSHA 3030. I was very grateful to, to be able to work with you on this. Thank you for the opportunity to discuss this uh, meaningful case. Well, we're looking forward to seeing everyone again in one month, in 30 more days. And until then, stay safe. Mm -hmm.